Welcome to the RHA Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Chris McCarthy, Chief Executive Officer at Hear and Say Centre. It's great to have you along today, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation with Chris McCarthy. He's a very interesting guy that in his career has worked across a number of very different sectors. And I think you'll find his insights in terms of how he's been able to manage those transitions very interesting. But before I introduce Chris to you properly, let me introduce myself for those people who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if we can assist you in any way with recruitment needs at your organisation, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a talk to you about that. Let me now introduce to you Chris McCarthy. Chris McCarthy was born in regional Australia, and after finishing school, he commenced a university degree, however decided to drop out, and after working in a number of different roles, joined the Army and undertook Army officer training. He ended up in the Australian Defence Force for approximately 12 years, at which point he exited and joined SMS Management and Technology as a consultant in Queensland. After working with them for approximately a year, he joined Suncorp Metway and worked in a number of roles before joining his current organisation, Hear and Say Centre, initially as their general manager and since July 2012 as their chief executive officer. Chris lives in Brisbane with his family. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Chris McCarthy. Well, Chris, uh, thanks very much for joining me today on the Aratay podcast. And for the people listening in, this is actually uh, take two because Chris and I had previously done this. And unfortunately, I had uh, some issues and the file got corrupted. So I appreciate your patience, uh, Chris, and taking the opportunity to have a chat to me again today. Richard, uh, it's fantastic. And what do they say? To err is human, but to really stuff up, you need technology. Oh, I haven't heard that one before, but uh, I'll definitely put that one in the holster. That's a good one. <laughs> so, Chris, um, uh, for the benefit of people who are listening, just to begin with, tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. So, um, I'm the Chief Executive Officer at Here and Say. So Here and Say is a relatively small children's charity for children who are deaf or with hearing loss. Um, We're a Queensland-based organisation. We're uh, about 60, 65 staff, give or take, uh, with centres in Brisbane, Mm -hmm. uh, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, Toowoomba, Cairns and Townsville. And I suppose the premise behind the organisation is, uh, and we were founded Sorry, as I'll digress for a second. We were founded 25 years ago, so we turned 25 this year. So, okay. big celebration this year in 2017 for our 25th years, uh, for our 25 years. Um, but when we were founded 25 years ago by our uh, founder, Dr. Dimity Dawn, and it was around the premise that children who are deaf can listen and speak just like you and me. But to do that, you need early diagnosis, mm-hmm. great technology like a cochlear implant or a digital hearing aid, and the right therapy. And mm-hmm. so that's what we do as an organisation at our core, but lately over the last couple of years we've been trying to expand our reach and our impact by you know, turning to things like um, you know, good hearing practices, so almost shifting in a way from hearing 
loss to hearing. So okay. So yeah. So that's me, and that's us. Right. So what do you mean by good hearing practices then? Um, uh, if you think about uh, inclusive design, mm-hmm. so if you think about in any building now, um, you know, we'll build a ramp as a matter of course instead okay. of steps. So that inclusive design incorporates, you know, all needs for all people with all Got mobility it. types. Okay, yeah. So if you think about the things that you do for a child with hearing loss, mm-hmm. if you actually incorporate that into day-to-day living, so um, uh, as an example, if I uh, think about a classroom, if I have a classroom with all bare walls, um, you're going to get all this reverberation. Mm-hmm. Kids, you know, open their pencil cases, pull out their drawers, you know, move their chairs. You're going to get this cacophony of noise, uh, cacophony of noise, and it's going to be difficult for a child to hear, irrespective right. of whether they got a hearing loss. Right. So if you think about good hearing practices mm-hmm. for everyone, okay, it then incorporates, you know, the needs uh-huh. of kids who've got um, hearing loss. Right. And uh, is that a, uh, an initiative that's really sort of started uh, in this organisation or is that something that you've adopted from you know, practices elsewhere in the world? Um, I would probably think that it's come from us. You know, we, uh, we have a bit of a saying here, think hearing first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose when you, you sort of see where that comes from, if a, if a child's not developing like you would expect, if mm-hmm. a child's behaving in a way that you, know, you can't seem to explain... Uh, you know, if they're not meeting developmental milestones, think hearing first, cross hearing off the list because often a child won't um, develop speech and language or may have issues because they can't hear you. Mm -hmm. You think about the way, and it's a little bit of a bow, but it's a good example. If you think about the way that a child who is misbehaving presents. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Chris, pick up your pencils. Chris, go and put your, you know, bag away, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, tell that you know I'm a father of three so um, if I had a dollar for every time I repeated myself I'd be a millionaire <laughs> but um, that's just because the kids don't listen yeah. as opposed to them not hearing mm-hmm. so you know a good practice is to say you know, Chris wait for the response Chris wait for the response okay I've now got your attention Right. please put your bag away mm-hmm. whatever it ha- might happen to be so again you know things like that are some of the things that we're doing here are really recognising that um, many of the practices that we have seen over the years in therapy mm-hmm. are actually just really good practices for mm-hmm. mums and dads, sure. Little development of little people. Well, it's not just dealing with kids, it's dealing with adults as well. Well, you're exactly right. The, the, the program that we run is actually about teaching mums and dads mm. who are the natural language teachers of their children, mm-hmm. how to actually teach their children how to listen and speak. Because coming and seeing me for an hour a week or, or you know, two hours a week is, is wonderful and that will, I'm sure, make a difference. Yeah. But taking those teachings back into your home environment mm-hmm. when you're awake, you seem to be awake 23 hours a day with the child, mm-hmm. well, that's when they're actually going to get... That's where the miracle right. happens. And just to give us an idea of the scope, you know, you talk about... You know the entire population of children, say in Australia. Yes. What what percentage of those would have some kind of hearing difficulty? Um, so we will often talk about uh, you know, and it's very well researched. Um, between one and three and a thousand children will be born with some sort of hearing loss in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the moment, the, you know, what is it? Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Yeah. But I think at the moment it's about one point two per thousand. Okay. So to give context for Queensland, Queensland has about sixty five thousand. Birth, live births a year. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at you know 
between that one and three in a thousand, you're looking at somewhere between say sixty and one hundred eighty. Mm-hmm. Now that figure will double by school age as a result of degenerative losses, mm-hmm. illnesses, injuries. You know, um, things like you know meningococcal have, potentially will have a you know, um, or meningitis will have an issue with hearing loss. Can potentially present as a present hearing loss issues. Uh, chemotherapy sometimes will have an impact on you know hearing as well. So there's lots of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that cohort, you know, you're looking at is sort of you know 60 to 150, give or take, and that will be the whole range of hearing. So that'll be you know mild to moderate hearing loss in one ear through to profound bilateral hearing loss mm-hmm. um, in both ears. Um, we last year actually rolled out um, a school screening program as well, and we're trying to expand that a little bit in terms of you know increasing reach and impact because. Hearing loss will impact us at any age, but when a child is starting their you know, schooling, their formal schooling journey or their academic journey, it's really important to make sure that they're hearing well. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, at last count, you know, we'd screened around 10,000 kids, I think, and, and you know, surprisingly, um, around 20% of the kids that we screened on the day had some hearing issue going on. Mm-hmm. Now, I need to qualify that fairly quickly because many of those children will have had, you know, transient loss as a result of a flu or, you know, a cold. Um, some of them will have just been middle ear issues as a result of, you know, things like otitis media and glue ear and things like that. But some of them will have had a permanent hearing loss as well. The interesting thing about that, you know, quite significant number is one... Um, that there's clearly a hearing health issue, but two, that there's an, uh, an educational issue. So if a teacher, if you said to a teacher, okay, today 20% of your class aren't hearing you properly, mm. you know, what's the sort of, I suppose, um, not only the educational impact of that, but the social and emotional development impact of, you know, a child not hearing, whether it be in the classroom or in the playground. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we are focused on is expanding our screening program, our, our hearing screening program. Mm-hmm. And we've actually even like last year um, done a pilot with a couple of kindergarten and um, early childhood providers around a school readiness program. Mm-hmm. You know, so looking at gross um, motor development, hearing and speech and language development, just to get kids ready for school, mm-hmm. to make sure that, again, one, the classroom environment or the care environment is... You know, is set up for all kids to be able to hear well, um, and that any you know children who have got any issues can be given, you know, really that kickstart which allows them to develop to okay. the best of their ability. Okay, great. Hmm. Well, uh, certainly we'll come back and talk more about yes. uh, here and say later in the conversation. But uh, let's go back to uh, where it all began and, and talk to us about you know early life, mum and dad, and, and growing up, etc. Um, so I'm a Queensland kid through and through. Uh, I was born in Rockhampton. My um, dad was a school teacher and, you know, became a school principal. Um, and they were both Rocky or Central Queensland. Mum was a Rocky girl and Dad yeah. was from Gracemere. Okay. Um, just out of Rocky. And then we moved around a lot. So, you know, I lived in, you know, Dolby or places outside of Dolby. Uh, you know, a little small property outside of Gundawindi. Uh, my brother was born in Gundawindi. So there's me and my brother, mm-hmm. uh, um, just the two of us. Uh, so then we moved to Ballandine, a place just south of Stanthorpe, um, which is sort of one of my spiritual homes. Okay. Um, Why and, do you say that? 
Uh, I suppose I spent a lot of, you know, most of my primary school in okay. Ballandine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it is a beautiful part of Queensland. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got lots of, I suppose, family friends from that, mm-hmm. that region. Um, we then moved up north to Richmond, up in, you know, you know halfway between Mount Isa and Townsville. Spent a couple of years up there. Then I went and boarded. I was a boarding uh, school kid for um, my first year of high school. Uh, down to Yapoon at some point. Okay, yeah. Um, and then mum and dad moved to Brisbane basically. Right. And, you know, dad got a post to Brisbane, and so I did the rest of my high school in Brisbane at um, Sunnybank State High. Okay. So, you know, so I would, as I said, I'm, you know, I'd say I'm a country kid, I'm, mm-hmm. uh, although, you know, most of my adult life has been in the city, but mm-hmm. my, certainly my roots are okay. um, in the bush. Sure. And so uh, I suppose uh, growing up, uh, with a father who's a school principal and so on, the importance of education would have been a, a big part of the just general philosophy of your family, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, when, when I think about sort of the context of our conversation, getting here, you know, in terms of leadership as well, mm-hmm. um, so very important as, uh, you know, the school principal's son. So interestingly, I, you know, I think it has had a big impact on forming who I am. Pretty much every school you turn up to, when you're the principal's son, the first thing that would happen is you'd get into a fight. Um, you know, so I became very good at being um, a good negotiator. All right. Um, and, uh, yeah, and you learnt, you know, you learnt who the school bully was pretty quickly. Okay. Um, what is it? I won my last fight by a handful of sand and 100 yards. Right. Um, no, um, so that did give me i think a lot of uh you know foundation for who i am mm-hmm. clearly the uh, importance of you know fitting into a community and being mm-hmm. part of the community um and in the bush you know it is very much a patriarchal society still um you know so the school principal had a fairly um important role in some of those small communities because mm-hmm. the school was the hub you know that's where you had the you know the barbecues the working bees you sure. know the the you know, cabarets, social dances, sort of going up, things like that. So um, that was pretty interesting. And, yeah, and clearly uh, the school principal's son had to do reasonably well mm-hmm. in his um, in his studies. So I did do a... I did reasonably well, but I think it was more by good luck than good management to a certain extent. But you weren't uh, inspired to become a teacher yourself? No. Uh, my younger brother was, though, interestingly. Um, and our family actually has quite a few teachers, you know, extended family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, dads, you know, sisters and a couple of brothers are teachers. And so I'm a bit of a black sheep of the family, actually. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I finished high school... Uh, and I said, did reasonably well um, and felt that I had to go to university. Mm-hmm. That was sort of, you know, that's where you go. Mm-hmm. Um, I That coincided with me getting my first motorbike, uh, turning 18, you know, getting my first sort of really serious girlfriend. And so right. I have to say that my university studies suffered somewhat. I'm uh-huh. a reasonably good pool player and uh, um, can drink reasonably well as a result of some of that training in those early years at uni. And what was uh, your uh, your start at a uni degree? What were you studying? Um, I, I went to engineering, actually. I, yeah. I had visions of becoming a mining engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, you know, I mucked around at uni. I you know, tried to find my feet and um, swapped over to psychology. Okay. Um, and... I think I left university probably just before they kicked me out. You know. Were you working during this time as well? Yeah, I had. I, I've always had sort of, 
even in high school I had jobs. I think I started out as a butcher's assistant, you know, mm-hmm. so I was a butcher's assistant for most of high school and in my, you know, through uni, uh, which kept me fed in meat yeah. um, for a long time. Did you learn to speak backwards? <laughs> no, I didn't actually. Um, you know about that? The, the, the butchers had this, uh, traditionally they could speak backwards and it was how they would talk to each other in front of the customers. It <laughs> seems it's largely died out, but it was a big thing about being a butcher back in the day. Oh, okay. No, I didn't. Yeah. I, I didn't hear that one. Um, there were some interesting practices, you know, if you, every butcher and I've sort of stayed with the shop as we transferred over owners a few times and I'm pretty sure every butcher that I worked with, you know, was short a finger right. you know, or a stump sort of thing. My first job was cleaning a butcher shop on a oh, Saturday morning. Yeah, well, so, uh, I, I can relate exactly to what you're talking well, about. Well, you would, you know, the brine bin, I used to hate cleaning out the brine bin. Oh. <laughs> And making the sausages, I had to do yeah, that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it re- re- makes you rethink what needs to go into sausages. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay, so uh, off to uni, a um, bit of a false start with engineering, then psychology. So what happened from there? Um, so one of the jobs, so I was a waiter at a dishy mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I used to go on semester breaks. Um, you know, I used to work at a wire factory as a spot welder. Okay. Um, but I worked as a storeman and packer and a forklift driver for a small transport company. Um which sort of fitted around my studies and I when I left university I sort of did that more full time and this is all over sort of a you know 12 or 18 month yeah. period it's a bit of a blur there and I ran into a guy I went to school with um, at the pub actually at Fridays back in the day uh, um, still and, an institution yeah <laughs> it is I'm sure it's very different to um, what it used to be like but uh, I ran into him and, and he had just graduated from um, Duntroon. Mm-hmm. And actually, and probably if I go back to just before uni, at, at high school, I graduated high school in you know um, late 80s. And that was just around the time when Top Gun was released. Mm-hmm. So I think like every other 16-year-old boy, I had visions of being a fighter pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't sort of pat my head and rub my tummy at the same time. So, you know, when I think I went through... Air Force recruiting, they probably smiled and went, here's another one, come back and see us in a couple of years. So I probably had in my mind, you know, that defence was an option. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I ran into this mate and, you know, we had a bit of a chat and I caught up with him for a beer later on and uh, he talked about his experiences at Duntroon, you know, and with the Army, his office training for the Army, and I went, yeah, this sounds a bit interesting. So I looked into it a bit more and, you know, did the testing and... Mm -hmm. As they say, the rest is history. Um, so I ended up going to Duntroon, um, 91, 92, 92, 92, 93. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I actually got in in 91, but they, they changed the intake, co- the cohort intake. And so I yeah, went through in 92 and graduated in 93 um, from there and you know, spent I don't know, 12 years in the army. And what did that predominantly uh, entail, that 12 years? Uh, look, it was a, you know, I loved it. It was a really interesting series of jobs. Um, it, it is a bit of a vocation, I think. Um, I, uh, you know, my first posting at Duntroon was to a helicopter squadron. In the, so I was workshops. So I ended up in workshops, uh-huh. uh, workshop management um, or logistics. And, I, and part of the reason I think that I went there was, um, 
you know, you've got to do everything. You know, so, I mean, I suppose it's demonstrated, as was demonstrated by my career, my first posting was to a helicopter squadron uh, in Sydney and we moved up to Darwin. Uh, then I spent a few more years up in Darwin at a logistics battalion up there and then with, uh, you know, the 2nd Cavalry Regiment, a light armoured unit up in, uh, in Darwin. You know, that were some fantastic years working with 2CAV. Um, came down to... Um, Brisbane, spent some time in Brisbane, you know, working with one of the local infantry battalions and one of the logistic battalions here, you know, went went to East Timor when East Timor happened, um, came back from East Timor, went and did the Olympics, uh, you know, with a unit um, called the Joint Incident Response Unit, which again was a really fantastic experience, a very different operation clearly from East Timor, but a, an important operation at the time. Um, they sent me back to university for my Sins and I went and did a master's um, of, of sort of management, but in really in sort of capability development, project management and acquisition. Um, and then as my penance went and spent a couple of years in Melbourne doing, um, uh, you know, project management and various jobs in Melbourne. Right. Uh, where we started to have a family um, and uh, I got posted up to Canungra to take up a post as an instructor in Canungra and didn't sort of march in there. You know, that was when I thought, right, if I'm ever going to get out of the military, because as I said, we started having kids, and mm-hmm. um, in my experience of what I'd seen, army life and married life and kids, you know, sometimes doesn't go together as well as it could, and so I felt I wanted to put down roots, and I wanted to put down roots in southeast Queensland, so I got offered a role um, in Brisbane as a management consultant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, certainly in my work uh, in executive recruitment, I talk to people who are looking to exit the military and move into a civilian life yeah. and um, you know they're often very challenged around how their experience and credentials are valued you know um, yeah. uh, in a corporate arena um, yeah. so you know it'd be interesting to get your sort of thoughts in terms of the skills you developed whilst in the military that you found were well transferable into um, you know a civilian environment yeah. and also perhaps you know some of the uh, the things that you noticed that were substantively different? Um, look, I, I, yeah, look, there's a couple of interesting things spring to mind. Um, one of them is, I think, and look, you've clearly I've got a bias, but one of the things that I think is great about military people is you sort of know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and I reckon they're usually they're a pretty square peg, and if you need them for a round hole, you can knock the edges off. Right. You know, so... You know the sort of value set that you're getting. You know the um, you know the, the, the self discipline that comes with you know service in the military. Mm-hmm. So you know if if I was and I've spoken to many people who are transitioning, the skills that you get in the military are just fantastic. They're a really good foundation for anything. Um, you know, particularly through going through Duntroon, you know, the leadership training that you get there is is pretty much second to none. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge, I think, for anyone transitioning, though, is taking those skills and using them in, you know, the commercial environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like the military appreciation process, which is, you know, helps you go through a, a sort of a, a logical thought process to resolve a problem. Um, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, as, and as long as you recognise the skills that you've been given and bring them into the environment. So, you know, you go and... If I stand up here in front of, you know, the team at Here and Say and whack out an orders group, you know, you're going to lose everyone in the first, you know, 20 seconds. But if you understand, 
you know, the structure, you know, situation, mission, execution, administration, command and control. I mean, that's, you know, been drilled into you over the years. Mm-hmm. And you don't present it like that, but when you think about it in terms of your own planning, it's mm-hmm. really helpful um, to, to help you go into pretty much any environment, you know. The, the, one of the first principles that you're taught is around flexibility and no plan survives first contact. So mm-hmm. a lot of those basic skills that you are given in all of the military training establishments um, are fantastic skills to take into being a really good employee or business person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I often say, uh, and I have seen, you know, and I can think of people who have really successfully transitioned out of the military um, but I've also seen people who've got out of the military but never got out. Okay. And, you know, those ones who haven't been able to get out of uniform have struggled. Um, but I would, su- I would suggest... You're talking about they've tried to maintain similar behaviours in the, in the new environment or their heart is still in the military? What do you mean by um, that? No, they're, they're, they're probably their style. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of people... You can you you know there is a little bit of a secret handshake you know you can mm-hmm. sort of often tell um, other ex-military people um, and you'd be surprised in Queensland how many you know ex-military people float around or you probably wouldn't be but sure there's a lot of ex-military guys. Well, I interviewed else. Campbell Newman for this podcast yeah. and uh, we had a very similar conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, even uh, I know Suncorp's um, CEO Patrick Snowball was yeah. uh, um, tank, tank commander. commander. You yeah. know, so. There's lots of guys out there who've got it. And, and again, I think it just gives you um, a nice scaffolding to build on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't, you can't rely on rank. And, you know, and, and I would suggest that um, a successful military leader would never rely on rank either. You mm-hmm. know, you, um, it's about, you know, it is about negotiation and communication and, you know, giving people a greater vision and, you know, empowering your team and all those sort of things that are, are really just good leadership practices. It's where people will be unsuccessful is where they try and impose their will, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, and that doesn't need to be a military person. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone will be unsuccessful if they try and do that. And time. so you exited and went into a consulting role. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So tell us a, a bit about um, that. Look, I, I think the idea behind that was uh, getting the opportunity to see industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think I struggled like a lot of people with understanding where my place in the real world was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my, probably fairly naively, my thought process was that being a consultant would allow me the opportunity to, you know, bounce around different industries and get an understanding of what I wanted to be. Um, my experience was that consultancy to a certain extent, is about billing. Um, Definitely. And uh, and I now understand that, you know, and I've probably got a bit more experience and a bit more, you know, a mm-hmm. bit less naive. Um, and I felt a little bit like uh, a mercenary, if I want to use the mm-hmm. analogy, of, you know, selling your soul to the to sort of the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't what I was looking for. And I don't, you know, certainly don't um, look back on it with anything other than fond experiences, but it probably wasn't what I had expected. So... Um, I then went and worked for Suncorp, mm-hmm. uh, looking for a bit more of a team environment to try and uh, probably satisfy some of my mm-hmm. you know, what I had missed, you know, moving out of the military. Okay. So how did that opportunity present to you? Um, I, you know, I had I had done some work there. I'd met mm-hmm. a couple of people there, and there was a fair bit of change going on. 
uh, and one of the one of the team and on the Suncom team said, "Look, you know, we love it. Have you come across?" And mm-hmm. you know, it was probably what I was looking for at the time. And what were you doing with them? Uh, I was doing some sort of leadership development, you know, a bit of strategic advice, a bit of. Um, I think you know, I ended up going across. Oh, actually, I was in a project management uh, role, um, working there uh, originally, and then, you know, I, I think you you know you keep your head down and work hard and people find you, you mm-hmm. know? so um, so I had a couple of different roles there and that was, I was in Suncorp at the time that they did the prominent merge, so they did a, a big focus around insurance mm-hmm. um, and while I really enjoyed that experience, I think at that point in time I found that I was missing my sense of purpose Right. Um, and Suncorp has got a fantastic, or, or used to have and I think still does have a fantastic um, corporate and community engagement you know, mm-hmm. model, and uh, I got to do some volunteering days with them over the couple of years that I was there. And one of the places that I volunteered at was here in Say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I met Dimity, who you know, um, um, who was looking after you know here in Say, and I said to her, "Look, here's me. Here's who I am." So at that point, she was founder and CEO. She was founder. What did we? What was she called? Founder, I think, and managing director. I think okay. is what they called her. Yeah. Um, and uh, I said, look, I'd love to be part of what you've got going on here. Mm-hmm. She introduced me to the chairman of the board at the time. And, you know, we spoke about my background and they brought me on as, I think I was called something interesting. It was like, uh, I'd have even been special projects manager or actually it was manager people strategy and planning or something like that. And it was just really, I suppose, a title to allow me to do stuff, you know. So I um, I always sort of talk about here and say, you know, it's a bit like a, it's it's Dimity's baby. Here and say will always be Dimity's baby, mm-hmm. um, but it's just grown up and I married into the family. Right. And, you know, it's my okay. responsibility to protect and preserve and promote the uh-huh. organisation. So, um, you know, I, I've been here, just coming up to 10 years now, mm-hmm. um, and Dimity's still very much involved. Uh, and you know, I see my role as CEO as empowering the organisation to make things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how long in the CEO role? Um, uh, four years, I okay. think. Yeah, yeah. So interestingly, you've gone from military, you know, uh, culture into a consulting, and then corporate culture, and then to a not-for-profit culture. So yes. you know, I, again, I get approached by lots of people who work in corporate career. Uh, careers, and they say, I'd really like to give back, I'd really like to move my career into the not-for-profit sector. Yep. So, you know, what were some of the, um, you know, the, uh, what, what were some of the um, unusual elements of working in a not-for-profit that perhaps you hadn't anticipated prior to coming into this environment? Um, so he says with a smile, uh, you know, military and where I was working at Suncorp was very much because um, I was actually in IT for a while mm-hmm. in the IT um, line of business, and I, I I struggled to sell IT, spell IT, let alone do anything else. So, but it was very much a male-dominated, um, you know, yeah, in, uh, industry, and certainly the military is a very much a male-dominated industry, um, and that's changing positively as an aside. Um, but moving to here and say, you know, at the time I was one of two men. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've we've got five now, six maybe. Mm-hmm. So you know, the gender shift was quite interesting. Sure. 
and the cultural shift is very um, different as well. Uh, I mean, I the not-for-profit sector, and you know, many people have said this, um, is a misnomer. Mm-hmm. You know, my bank doesn't accept love tokens to pay the mortgage. Yeah, the not-for-profit sector is actually about making money to serve a purpose. I think the you know people are saying not for dividend, or what I think is better is is a profit for purpose. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. And you know. The, the whole and, and every, every organisation is mission driven to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but I really do believe that one of the things about organisations like USA is, you know, the mission or the the, the, the client, i.e., our kids and our families, very much is at the core of what everyone does, mm-hmm. um, almost at times to the detriment of the organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the biggest challenge I reckon I've faced, you know, transitioning is about. Um, helping the here and say team to understand that 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 you know money's not a dirty word, that profit is not a dirty word, and that we need to find ways to make money. Now, whether that's you know through government sources of funding, through philanthropic sources of funding, or through commercial opportunities, to generate either a profit or at least a break-even point, so mm-hmm. that we can continue to do what we do. Um, I don't worry necessarily about the kids and the families in our program already because they've found here and say, if here and say close their doors tomorrow, it would be a disappointment and it would be a shame. But those kids and families have been given, I suppose, a vision of what can be. Mm -hmm. I worry about uh, those people who haven't found us yet, those kids who haven't been born yet, those families who don't know yet that they need here and say because... You know, it would be a travesty for an organisation like here and say not to be in existence because the outcomes that we achieve are life-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, declaring my bias, but even when I... And just this morning, actually, I, I actually walked up to a mum this morning and I said, thank you for this morning. I said, you have reminded me about why I am here. Mm-hmm. Little girl, um, I don't know how old she'd be, must be two or three, uh, Two cochlear implants had walked out. She just had a lesson with one of our therapists. She was sitting out in reception with mum, and they were FaceTiming dad. Right. Profoundly deaf child sitting mm. there talking to dad on you know the iPhone about what had happened and things like mm-hmm. that. So I then went out and you know said good day to mum and had a bit of a chat and and then had a little chat with this girl about you know her sparkly shoes and mm-hmm. help. A, a, a normal, in inverted commas, interaction with a child. Mm-hmm. But the miracle part of that is that the child is profoundly deaf mm. and, you know, was communicating beautifully, was having a chat with, you know, this bloke about her shoes and, yeah. you know, what she'd done. And that's why we're there. We mm-hmm. are connecting kids to their first community and that's their mum and dad and their family and we're doing that through speech and language. And so for me... You know that that mission is so important, mm-hmm. and to a certain extent, it makes it easier to do your job, but it also makes it harder. Easier because the people who are here are generally have a heart commitment to getting great work done. Yeah, because they're committed to the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the you know, if I go back to my military experience, this this fellow who I talked to, I was, was suggesting, um, you know, make you know, I, I attribute him to having helped me join the army. The guy you met in the pub, in, in the, the pub, pub yeah, yeah, who I went to school with. Um, 
a head nod out to Jono. He'll know who he is. Right. Um, so when he, he got out a few years before me out of the military as well, so I sort of, you know, arguably followed him. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, what's it like? What's the transition like? And he said, well, you know, when you're a troop commander or a platoon commander in the army and you look after 30 blokes, he said, you've got 30 blokes there and your responsibility is to look after them. He said, 25 of them are fantastic. And he said, five of them, you know, give you all your work. Mm-hmm. He said, getting out, he said, you're still looking after 30 blokes. He said, but five of them are fantastic and you're looking after 25. <laughs> you know, and so, so that sort of, and, uh, you know, clearly it's tongue in cheek. But, yeah. you know, that, if, I, if I draw that analogy across to the work that you do here, um, you are so committed to achieving the aim. You know, the mm-hmm. team really are so emotionally connected to these kids and their families and you know giving them the best that again I go back to sometimes you know the the financial conversation just isn't isn't even on the table Mm. you know and that's the tough thing because I suppose my role is to balance you know the greater good with the individual good Mm -hmm. you know and that's a real tension um, Mm. that I certainly feel and I know many of our team feel and when you then go and throw, uh, you know, a, a social justice reform like the National Disability Insurance Scheme on top of that, mm-hmm. you know, it really changes the dynamic of of the market and, and how an organisation like Here and Say operates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that's a mm. yeah. It's interesting. I mean, uh, I we do a lot of work in the not for profit sector and uh, yeah. recruited many CEOs and. Uh, not executive directors and, and executives in, and they all seem to have you know this exact same um, issue, which on the one hand is a tremendous benefit, and on the other hand, you know, creates uh, some challenges from a leadership point of view. Yeah. H- how much cross fertilization of ideas are there between you and your peers who are working in other not for profits uh, in terms of looking at ways to create best practice, particularly around you know what seems to be a, a fairly generic challenge. Um, so I, I, I suppose one of the things that I would like to do first though is, is dispel some of the misconceptions about the not-for-profit sector mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm happy to hug trees and wear hemp you know like I, I'm a hippie at heart to a certain extent um, but I'm also a serious you know business person yeah. and I think you know if I had a dollar for every time someone said to me you know you should develop a strategic plan or well, you should go and talk to some of the big, you know, the big, um, maybe Cochlear or, you know, some of the big banks or something like that. That'd give you some money. It, it's, it's, it's given, you know, that, that advice is given from the right place. Mm. Um, but many people, I think, in, in business don't realise that, you know, running, the, you know, running a business like this is no different to any other mm. um, organisation. It's no different to running a business. The difference I often say is the more kids I get through, you know, if I'm running a business selling widgets, as an example, the more widgets I sell, the more money I get in. You know, there's efficiencies, there's, you know, profit and losses. But but effectively, the more sales I make, the more money I make. The more kids that I have come through the door at Here and Say, the harder it actually is because, mm-hmm. the more, you know, because I'm yeah. not funded to support them. Sure. Um, so therefore, the more work I actually need to do out, you know, whether it's we philanthropic government or, again, finding funds. So, um, you know, so the the not-for-profit sector, I think, um, does suffer to a certain extent from a reputation, 
issue. You know, I'm sure there are lots of, you know, good-hearted people out there with, with no idea, you know, mm-hmm. um, trying to do the best that they can. But when you go on, you know, when I talk to my peers, you know, in the not-for-profit sector, there is, there is a lot of collaboration that goes on. There mm-hmm. is a lot of um, sharing of experience, uh, you know, recruitment approaches to recruitment, um, uh, you know, leadership development, uh, you know, clinical or, or, or therapeutic sharing of, mm-hmm. of, of, um, of other people or infrastructure. So there is a reasonably mm-hmm. good, I think, um, collaborative environment mm-hmm. within the not-for-profit sector that probably can't occur somewhat in other industries because you really are competing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, everyone's competing for the charity dollar. It's, you know... you can't walk down the street in Queen Street and not have been approached by someone. <laughs> um, we don't do that here and say, doesn't do that, I Thank might you. Um, but again, you know, it, it's an ask. Sure. Um, you know, I, I do believe the role of the not-for-profit sector or the non-government sector mm-hmm. is to bring together government, corporate, philanthropic and community funds to deliver social change, mm-hmm. social justice social outcomes mm-hmm. um, and I, I would like to think that's, that here in say you know does that responsibly and I think I believe does that quite well mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of other organisations that, that do that out there just as well and you know as a as a punter it's you know it's difficult how do you choose between a child with hearing loss a child with cancer you know uh, animals you mean as a punter who's donating money that's right well yeah. absolutely you know as you're talking I'm thinking about this um you know, it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword in that uh, you might have a CEO of, say, for example, Canteen, yes. looking after kids with cancer, you know, which is very different business to yours. And, and so in some respects, you can have collaboration because you're not a competitor, but at the same time, you are competing for the donation. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it creates a whole heap of, you know, challenges. And, you know, as a microcosm of that... I walk down Queen Street, as I do every single day, and yeah. every single block, you know, what I call chalkers, charity yeah. stalkers, yeah. you know, you're, you're constantly banging in. When you look at that from a military point of view, you know, in terms of uh, uh, your ability to assess situations and define, you know, uh, appropriate action to get better outcomes, what, what does the future look like? Um, so I, I think there's... Uh, a well-documented um, body of work out there which uh, talks about people who give, who are structured givers, give more. Mm. And you, well, I'm a workplace giver, so I donate some of my you know, funds back to here and say, and uh, you know, we support the Cancer Council, you know, I've been touched by cancer. Um, and it just comes out, you know, mm-hmm. so you don't actually see it. So I, I, I don't give to chuggers and door knockers when door knockers come I'll say mate thank you so much for doing that I appreciate the fact that you've volunteered your time or whatever the case may be I already give to these you know causes yeah um but so I won't be giving to you today mm-hmm. um that said you know I give to the girl guides when they come around or you know there's you know well, they've got great cookies. Yeah, they do have great cookies. I've got a couple of girl guides. So I'll, I'll come and see you later in the year when I've got a box of them to sell. No worries. Um, but I, I actually think that the you know so in response to your question, it is about helping uh, individuals, communities, and corporates and government 
um, to look at structured giving. Mm. So giving that is, or, or, or partnerships that are mutually beneficial. I don't want to go cap in hand to you as an organisation and say, please sir, may I have some more? Mm-hmm. I want to go to you and I want to say, look Richard, um, uh, you know, this is what we do. Uh, we are making a difference. Here's the evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, here's, here are some of the outputs in terms of numbers, but here are the outcomes, which is an important, you know, um, differentiation. Uh, you know, the alignment of values that we have as an organisation, uh, you know, here, here, and here. Mm. Uh, the alignment of business, you know, so we, um, you know, we deal with ENTs and allied health and, you know, you know that's, a, that's an audience that you might want to be part of, mm-hmm. you know. Would you like to be part of, you know, this in terms of mm-hmm. helping make the world a better place? Now, if your business or personal um, views are around helping, you know, cats and dogs, I'm going to say to you, look, I, I can't help you there. Yeah. Great organisation down in Wacol. They do some wonderful work. Call mm-hmm. the RSPCA. Go and see them. They'll do some, you know, that's where you should be investing your time, effort and money. Mm-hmm. So I think it is about, um, it's about partnerships and about helping people understand that, um, it, you know, it is, it is a, a, a structured and considered partnership. Mm-hmm. And I remember a few years back there was, um, I think it was before sort of the ACNC um, was you know, t- uh, in existence and there was a, um, a conversation that was happening around, and I think it was the Surf Lifesavers, uh, and they were under some criticism for their marketing budget. And, the C- uh, and uh, you know, if it wasn't him, apologies to who it was if it wasn't, um, he made the comment about if the CEO of Coca-Cola decided that he wasn't going to spend any money on marketing, he would be sacked tomorrow, or mm-hmm. he or she would be sacked tomorrow. So why shouldn't an organisation like the Surf Life Surfers or whomever mm-hmm. it was have exactly the same, you know, approach to business around mm-hmm. marketing, around brand development, around getting their messaging, you know, the safety message out and all those sort of things. Because then, you know, people will understand that they need it and they'll donate money to it, but they need to accept that all of that money is not probably going to end up, you know, in a red and yellowed cap bloke sitting on the beach or yeah. a girl sitting on the beach. So I think it's about helping people understand that um, to run a business... You need a reception. Mm-hmm. You need, you know, lights and roof, and you know, you need um, all the other things that everything else, everyone else needs in business. And you need audiologists, speech pathologists, occupational therapists, social, you know, all the other things that go around that. So, it's. I think if you help people understand the value of giving and why they should give, you know, and again, whether it's an individual, whether it's a community group, whether it's a corporate or government, mm-hmm. um, I think that helps everyone. So, mm-hmm. you know, what is it? A rising tide floats all boats. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's interesting you, you know, you mentioned Surf Lifesavers because I've had their CEO on the podcast and uh, we just recruited the National Head of uh, Development uh, in terms of the exact work that you're talking about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's very convoluted uh, and very challenging space to play. And, yeah. you know, there's certainly a much higher degree of expertise required to do that well than probably what was, you know, uh, ne- necessitated even, you know, five or ten years ago. Very much so, yeah. And so what about, you know, coming back to you personally, um, you know, a lot of your leadership development started in the military, but if you think about how you've developed as a leader working across different industries and different, you know, completely different sectors of the market, yeah. how, what, what would you say have some of been the 
key learnings that you've had as a leader that have enabled you to you know fulfill your role as CEO? Um, I, I'm a big believer in role models, you know. Like, and I've been really fortunate to have some great role models. I think over the years, um, uh, I'm a subscriber to you know um, reading. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that uh, that you know it's always important to you know maintain um, at least an awareness of what's going on out there. Um, I've been really lucky. I was fortunate enough to be picked up for a social leadership. Um, program maybe a couple of years back now actually it's a benevolent society, with the benevolent right? society yeah. and that you know oh, I have to say that probably was um, in a way transformational to uh, you know and, and I think I'm a you know I'd like to consider myself a lifelong learner mm-hmm. um, I tell you fatherhood is 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 clearly a great opportunity to learn mm-hmm. how terrible you are at everything um, and you know I think that resilience that you know you need to build into life mm-hmm. you know um is is a good skill to keep and, and I, I am a big believer in mindfulness you know I've, um, we have been fortunate here to have a few people support us and uh, i've continued to have uh, a couple of visitors here who've done lectures for our team around mindfulness and gratitude and things like that mm-hmm. so mindfulness uh in the context of meditation or or in other ways um yeah, look, you could say that. Oh, I'm not much of a meditator. Oh, yeah. You know, um, I think it's mindfulness in life. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, I was driving somewhere just recently, and I saw someone walking along the road, and, she, and this lady was taking a photo of. Um, I don't know what she was taking a photo of. To me, it looked like she was taking a photo of um, a spider web. You know, with the sunlight behind it, yeah. and I thought, you know, there is so much beauty and so much, uh, you know wonder in the world mm-hmm. um, that you miss it if you don't take a, a moment to stop and, and experience everything that you, you know, mm. that you the moment that you're in um, you know I have a little post-it note on my um, on my monitor which says you know keep calm and inquire because when you actually take um, an inquiring mind into every situation and I, you know and I think you know, kids are amazing, and I get the opportunity to see it quite regularly. Everything for them is a, is a wonder, you know. And I think if you if you take that sort of mindset, okay, I'm here to learn. It it, it really does help you, you know. It really mm-hmm. helps you um, not respond. It helps you to react. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, not react. It helps you to respond. You know, um, it helps you to recognise when emotions getting involved. Um, it helps you to recognise when emotion should be involved. You know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I live a blessed life. You know, mm-hmm. I'm in a fantastic organisation, a fantastic family. I've, you know, got my health. Um, you, know. you mentioned in passing that uh, you've had a personal experience um, with cancer. How much of that um, has informed your sort of uh, headspace now? Um, I'm sure it's had an impact. Uh, I, um, you know, get personal for a second. I had testicular cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had testicular cancer when I was um, a young man, and uh, I was in the military, and I was probably at my peak physical fitness. Um, you know, what is it? The older you get, the better you were, anyway. So you know, um, that that had an impact. 
clearly on you know defining who I am or who um, and who I was. Um, thankfully, you know, I'm the better for it. Mm-hmm. You know, got three kids and you know all's good. Um, so I think it is a little bit of a case of you know trying to live life to the fullest. Mm-hmm. Um, live each day like it's your last, and one mm-hmm. day you'll be right. Yep. Um, so I've got a little bit of that mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I used to jump out of planes and scuba dive and you know ride a motorbike and you know um, I do love you know sort of living life. Adrenaline. Yeah, I, I like adrenaline, but in, in the same breath, I'm very comfortable lying out in the paddock. Yeah. You know watching the clouds go past and mm-hmm. sleeping under the stars. So, I, again, it comes back to that mindfulness in a way around just enjoying, you know, and, and, it, or, and it doesn't need to even be enjoying, experiencing everything, mm. you know. Um, there's a really great, uh, simple thing to do, you know, with actually a piece of chocolate. You know, you think about the last piece of chocolate you had, you probably took a bite and ate it and swallowed it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you actually just take a, you know, a square of chocolate and put it on your tongue and just effectively let it melt mm. and you know and taste the different changes and you know the texture and all those sort of things you know there's there is awe and wonder all around us but oh, often sure. we're so busy walking down Queen Street yeah. that we we forget yeah look uh, I um, I meditate every day and it's been a big part of my practice for a long time I, yeah. I, I definitely think that uh, there are tremendous um, benefits to come from uh being at peace uh, in the yes. moment and yep. just enjoying life yep. for what it is. Um, Completely agree. With you. So, uh, uh, and so, when you look to the future now, Chris, you know uh, you've been here for ten years. You've been yep. in the role of CEO for probably pretty much half of that time. Yeah. You know, if you look ten years into the future, what are the kind of things that you're excited about uh, for the organisation and for yourself personally? Yeah, look, I think, um, yeah, so NDIS hasn't rolled out across Queensland yet. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's just starting. Um, I would really like to see, you know, that, that, that rolled out effectively within the organisation and, um, and us get to a point in time where, you know, it, it isn't the hand-to-mouth existence of, mm-hmm. um, you know, of the not-for-profit sector where there's actually, you know, a bit of breaking case of emergency funds tucked away. Um, I really think that there's a growth piece for us as an organisation, which I'm quite excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I said, reach and impact, reach, impact, and resilience are sort of the three things that I, you know, I'm trying to focus on at the moment for the organisation. Uh, and one of the areas that we are sort of um, growing into is also the human bionic space. So, mm-hmm. you know, the cochlear implant uh, is you know, clearly the you know, the bionic ear and um, it was really the first time in history where we had an interface between a human sense, human consciousness, and technology. Mm. And I think that we've learned a lot over the, you know, the 25 years that we've been around. And there is a great opportunity with more and more bionic devices coming out to help um, practitioners, you know, clients, and developers understand that you know that interplay that needs to occur. Mm. Um, so we'll you know we are doing a, a, a little bit in that space. Um, you know, technology is just I mean amazing. I mean even you know I like to consider myself a young fellow, but it, you know even in my sort of forty five years, you know the changes in technology are phenomenal, and mm. I think it is going to continue to exponentially ch- change. Mm. You know, and and embracing technology mm. and. and and exploiting technology, I think, is a big part 
mm. of our future. I read a book uh, last year called The Inevitable, written by the uh, the editor in chief of Wired magazine about all of the new technology. Yeah. And, you know, this nanotechnology that is yeah. allowing people to be able to see yeah. who are blind through their skin. Um, and you know the idea that the brain is um, has neuroplasticity, uh, plasticity, and uh, yeah. you know if the function that um, uh, controls sight doesn't have the eyes to rely on, you know it can yeah. rearrange itself to yeah. be able to see in other ways. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Well, look, one of the one of the lines that we use here all the time is um, ears aren't the organ of hearing. The brain is. Ears yeah. are just the way in. Mm-hmm. Um, that is. You know, that's the same for every sense, and mm. you're exactly right. You know, the, um, teaching the brain, teaching the brain is what we do here, um, but it is about that neuroplasticity of the brain mm. that is so powerful. And you know, we we aren't far away from the matrix. You know, in terms of you know jacking in and yep. learning French or yep. you know how to fly a you know <laughs> black white helicopter yeah. sort of thing. But, uh, you know, it is, it is all about the brain. And I think, uh, you know, as we get older as a, as a global community because mm-hmm. of, you know, what we know around health and, um, and our, our bodies start to fail because, um, you know, they will wear out. Mm. You know, bionics is it's going to become less about addressing deficits and more about enhancements and, mm. you know, um, additions. You know, how can I jack my memory up a little bit more? So, um, so yeah. I watched a TED Talk... Uh, and they were saying that they believe the person has already been born who will live to be a thousand. Yeah. And I think, I don't think I want to live to be a thousand, <laughs> but that's a completely different conversation. Okay, so what about for you personally, you know, in terms of uh, you're still a young man and you've got you know, quite a long career ahead of you, what yeah. would you like to achieve, you know, professionally in that regard? Um, look, I, I think that, uh, I think I've got a little bit more to do with here and say, or I'd like to think I've got more to do with here and say. I... I love working with people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I do probably need to extend myself uh, in some form, uh, you know, and I, I want to say formal studies, but I'm not talking about formal studies, but it's just about, you know, keeping up with, um, you know, best practices out there, you mm-hmm. know. Again, you know, what's happening at Mount Eliza, what's happening over in Stanford and Harvard and some of the great programs that are out there. I don't think I can ever really go back to you know, the commercial sector in its full sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I really do think that um, if the universe allows me, I'd like to still stay in, uh, again, whether it's in a commercial environment or whether it's in a not-for-profit, being involved in something which is delivering on a social good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'd love to work for a, a large company, a large organisation, you know, in working out how they engage with the community. Um I'd love the opportunity to, to do something a bit more international. You know, mm-hmm. I've had a little bit of a taste of that over you know in my life, but um, it'd be great to be able to get you know an experience like that under your belt. Um, I think at the end of the day, happy and healthy is all you can ever ask for. And yeah. you know, if I get that and I get that for my kids and family, well, you know. Happy, healthy, and wise. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> and we've talked a lot about work today, but what about uh, when you're not working? What are the kind of things that you enjoy doing other than chasing after your children? Um, you know, my wife Heather and I, are, you know, are outdoors people. Um, so we love, you know, water skiing and camping. And I just, you know, Australia Day weekend just recently went water skiing and camping out at Somerset. So that was lovely. And over Christmas holidays, you know, I went down to 
uh, mate's place down and uh, his partner's place down in um, near Byron, you know, again reconnected with my roots. So um, being outdoors is an important part of living an active lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I love my rugby union, you know. The older I bet, the older I get, the better I was. So right. I um I love the you know love um, being involved in the the rugby union set and uh, watching what's going on there. Um, we've got you know we've got a cat and a dog and ten chickens and three kids. So you know um, that does keep mm-hmm. us relatively busy. Um, but uh, you know, I do enjoy a good book. Yeah. Um, what, what, what's uh, something you've read recently that you really enjoyed? Um, I'm almost ashamed to admit it. I just finished reading one of the Jack Reacher novels, oh. actually. So <laughs> you know, that was a bit of um, uh, junk for the brain. Yeah. I, I have to say, sitting on my bedside table and for a far too long time has been um, uh, Stephen Hawkins. A, you know, a brief history. Of, um, right. And uh, you know, of time, and I, I you know. I know he dumbed down all that for us, uh, but mm-hmm. even even in his dumbest dumbed down form, I've I've struggled to uh, um, you know to sort of take all of that in. Um, what else is beside my bedside table at the moment? Oh, I've I've I'm a bit you know I was going to say I'm a bush poet, I'm not a bush poet, but I love my bush poetry. You know, right. so um, there's a Benjo Patterson book there at the moment. Sort of um, you know I'm reading through some of the his poetry and writings from mm-hmm. okay. back in the day. So yeah, a bit of quite bit an of eclectic mix. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And so just before we wrap it up, because I know you've got a busy day ahead. Um, obviously, the audience of this podcast are predominantly aspiring CEOs and very senior executives. And uh, other than what you've already spoken about today, is there any final words of wisdom you'd like to leave them with? Oh, look, I think you know. I think a lot of the time we just don't believe in ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that. Um, if you come from a noble place, like if you come from a good place uh, within yourself, you know you can achieve anything. Mm. Um, I had uh, I had my son. You gotta love kids, don't you? Because they just they challenge pretty much everything you say. But I um, I think it's a Henry Ford quote. You know, if you believe you can or can't, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And I I said that to my son just recently. He said, Well, wh- what if I say I can fly? Right. And I said, well, you can fly. And he said, well, no, I can't. And I said, yeah, I said, you can fly a helicopter, you can fly a plane. I said, you can jump out of a plane, you can wingsuit. Yeah. You know, and he said, but I can't flap my arms. And I said, well, you can do it from a diving board. And he said, but that's falling. And I said, no, it's like what Buzz Lightyear says. It's falling with style. <laughs> so, you know. Um, well, the thing about it is, you know, who's to say that in the future we won't be able to fly? Yeah, that's um, right. Uh, and I saw... Uh, there's now some VR contraption that you can uh, you can basically lie in, and you can actually have the experience of flying like a bird, oh, and it looks quite amazing. Fantastic! I'm really excited about trialling out a lot of these uh, yeah. new uh, VR and augmented reality things. I think uh, life's going to become really fun, or well, hopefully more fun. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Chris, really appreciate your time, and no, uh, I think you. second time around it was good to do it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, have a fantastic day, and I look forward to catching up again soon. No, thanks again, Richard. It was great to be here. Appreciate cool. it, mate. Okay. Cheers. Well, thanks again for joining me today on the RHA podcast. I trust you enjoyed this conversation with Chris. I look forward to having you along for future episodes. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.